Good morning. You've made it. Six weeks over three months. We've made it. Uh, if you will, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. That's 11.33 if you've got the ESV Pew Bible in front of you. First Corinthians chapter 4. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. 
And I will find out, not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, just as Paul has reminded us that Paul Reeves has reminded us that these little moments that come, these provokings, these urgings, these spurring on of your Spirit, Father, would we not mute them, but would we have tender hearts and attentive ears, Father, that we would understand that these things come from you. And so, Father, we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, I'll, I think I've shared this with no, the 9 o'clock group before, but I, and I'll never forget the day when I received hard criticism in one of my seminary classes, and one of my professors called out a, a mistake that I had made in my paper, one of the papers that I had written. It was a conceptual error, not a, a grammatical error, though the grammatical error would have been very humiliating as well. But uh, he made a point of this to the whole class, in front of the whole class, my peers, and I, I mean, I was gutted. I, I felt so ashamed. I, you know, how could I make such an error like this? And I remember I went to my dad, and I, I was telling him about what happened, and, and I told him, I said, yeah, I, I just don't know if I'm cut out for this. I, I don't know if this is for me. I, I felt inadequate. I, I felt incapable, and I thought he was going to console me and pat me on the back and tell me everything was okay. And based on your laughter, you know that he didn't do that. In fact, he was almost upset with me. He could not believe my reaction to the situation that I was in. And then do you know what he did, what he did next? He planted me, he planted my feet in my identity in Christ, reminding me of my calling, reminding me that life isn't about being easy, that it would require striving in my vocation, that it would require striving in vocational ministry, pastoral ministry, and that that calling was not for the faint of heart, but he knew that I had been called and I knew it too, but I was acting immature. And then, of course, he told me of all the challenges that he faced going to a prestigious seminary and, and, and only having about a year of English under his belt, coming from an entirely different culture with no immediate support, no family. That was like a, a cold glass of water down my back as he was relaying all this information to me. But it also knocked me out of my feeling sorry for myself and, and into a, a, an entirely new perspective. Now, maybe some of you have been recipients of that kind of uh, uh, love from others. Maybe some of you have been the ones who have uh, given out some of that love to others, that, that, that helpful, loving rebuke. That's a bit of what Paul is doing with the Corinthians here in chapter 4, a, a father instructing 
his children. Children who have rebelled, children who have been wayward, children who were not acting wisely, children who have forgotten who they are. But children who are loved, children who God desires to grow, children for whom Christ has died, children who have the Spirit of God in them. But they need a word from their spiritual father. Praise God for our spiritual moms and dads who strive with us, who are patient with us, who are honest with us, who love us at all costs, who care deeply and desire for us to grow spiritually. And I want us to look at chapter 4, the way that a parent would talk to a child. Remembering those of us in Christ are God's children. And we come together, as we, as we come together to hear from God's Word, we come in, in a position of humility and, and not arrogance. We know that this Word is good for us. Despite the degree of challenge that it issues to us. It is for our good. It is for our benefit. And so we, we're laying our weapons down and we're saying, Lord, what do you have for us here? Well, the first thing Paul does in this section is he, in a sense, defends himself, right? He's explaining his role and who he's accountable to. Just like a parent comes to a child and explains their role, so the child has clarity on, on, on why the parent is doing what they're doing, right? When I discipline my children, I explain my role as a parent so, so that that information is reinforced to them, that I don't just discipline them arbitrarily, you know. I kind of feel like giving you discipline just to keep you in line. No, there, there's always a reason behind it. There's always a, an explanation for why we're doing what we're doing. I have a role, and this is part of that role, is discipline. Paul says, verse 1, this is how you should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. It's not that people determine Paul's role or his identity. Now, the Corinthians may think certain things of Paul, but that doesn't change the reality of what God had called Paul to and the reality of who he was, where his assurance was, where his security was, where his identity lies. And that role was as a servant of Christ and a steward of the mysteries of God. Now, this word servant here, it's a word that means a subordinate serving their master, a subordinate serving their master. This is not the Greek word uh, 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 diakonoi, which we get for table servers, where you, like a deacon, right? We use the word deacon. You're serving the people. You're serve, this is the element of service here. No, this is a completely different Greek word. This is huperetes. This is the under rower of a ship. It's the lowest of lows in the, in the world's eyes. And so, therefore, the leaders are not worthy of ultimate loyalty or attachment, which is what we've been looking at in previous weeks. 
because they are subsidiary to another. They are underneath another. They are below another, and that other being Christ, who is worthy. Now, the word here, steward, it has the idea behind it of an estate manager. So while they are of lowly position, the under rower who's working hard and not receiving praise and glory, they have been called to an important task. The, 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 the steward, he, he, he serves, but he has some authority to execute his mission, right? Think about a, a head butler uh, uh, from yesteryear. You, you think of the TV shows like Downton Abbey, right? Mr. Carson. He's been given a lot of authority to, to execute the wishes of his master. And it's for the master's good. In all, Paul has used four terms for leaders in the church from what we looked at in chapter 3 last week. Servants in chapter 3, verse 5. Subordinates or assistants in chapter 4, verse 1 that we just looked at. Again, referring to a, the, the secondary position before Christ and the church ahead. Then he's used uh, fellow workers in chapter 3, verse 9, which is the definition of the, the relationship between uh, fellow co-workers, between uh, workers of the ministry, leaders in the, in the church. And then he's used this word steward or, or manager, which brings out the, the, that minister's ultimate responsibility is to God himself. And they are to dispense the gospel in all of its fullness. That's the mysteries that they are to make known. Right? It's a, it doesn't remain a mystery. It was a mystery in, 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 in the Old Testament, but now Christ has been revealed. And now the mystery is being uh, made known. It's being revealed to the people through the preached word. This is the role of the leader. So again, imagine a father explaining to the child the role that God has given them as the head of the home. And, and this gives clarity to the child that God is the ultimate authority. But he puts parents in the lives of children to, to serve and to lead. That's the role of the leaders in the church, to serve and to lead. And Paul says, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. That they be found faithful. It is the faithfulness of the steward to God that is ultimately what is being judged. Was the steward or manager faithful to his master, making known the gospel to the people under his care? This is what we were talking about last week when we talk about building with gold and silver and precious stones. Is that what will be revealed by the fire, that, that, that it was of eternal worth, that it was the, the fullness of the gospel being made clear, presented clearly to the people under the care of the shepherd? Because the Corinthians wanted to judge using a different set of criteria, right? They were looking for external traits, like were they eloquent with words? Were they impressive in the way that they presented themselves? Did they have an impressive uh, a personal presence? See, those things are things that would be burned up with, like hay and straw. They're not of eternal value. Now, let me say this. I work really, really, really hard 
on how I put my words together for uh, compiling a sermon. You know, I don't just sort of wake up and, and, and make it off, uh, off the top of my head. I want to be an effective communicator. I think that is a responsibility that I have. But I also work really, really, really hard, if not harder, to make sure that what I say is right and true and faithful to God's Word. Listen, I could work really hard at being an effective communicator and and divert or or, or neglect the text that we're looking at and just say what I want to say. And and so you'll gather around and you'll hear a really well-polished, well-executed speech, right? But God will not judge me for how effective I am as a communicator, God will judge me by my faithfulness to His gospel. That's why so many of you have come and you've told me in person or you've written to me about how much this series has meant to you personally or to your family. That's because, beloved, it is faithful to the text. And that's not me bragging. It's not just my thoughts on a topic or a subject. It's not me picking a verse and then preaching whatever it is I want to preach, ignoring the main point of emphasis, ignoring the points that come from the text. It comes straight from the Scriptures. And we, as pastors, we work really, really hard on that, to not divert from that, to hold the truth and to communicate it effectively. And Paul is saying, it is a small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. It is the Lord who judges me. And this goes for all of us, does it not? You know, we can't stick our finger in the air and sort of see where public opinion is and then go where everyone else is going. We must remain faithful to what we have been called to as Christians. And we've seen lots of fingers in the air. We see it in Christian circles around us. The Corinthians were judging Paul. They thought he was harsh in his letters, that he was gentle and weak when he comes to them in person. They thought that he was not as eloquent as others. And they made all of these judgments about him, so much so that if Paul did not have his identity rooted, grounded deeply in Christ, he would be tossed about by everyone's opinions of him. Think about this in your own lives. Do you measure yourself by human standards? Your success, your failures? Is your house up to uh, you know, the, the right standard of, of your peers? Are you keeping up with the Joneses? Are, 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 our, are our children measuring up to, to some standard? Are, are they in the right programs? Are they in the right sports? Are they in the right schools? Are our our vacations lining up? Does our social media profile measure up? Beloved, do you know what this type of thinking does to us? It puts us in competition with one another. It it, it isolates us. It it makes us unaligned as believers. It, It invites in 
emotions like jealousy and, and, and fear and worry and, and anxiety. And it, it brings in division when we play the comparison game. We need to know what we have been called to. Just as I was starting to lose track of what I had been called to and, and my father had to come and speak truth to me, we need to know what it looks like to be faithful to Christ, our head, and, and, and put all of that comparison that, that, that we're confronted with all the time and throw it in the trash. Paul's point here is that we need to consider how we judge others and particularly leaders. Now, I don't say that because I'm like, hey, I really don't want you to judge me because I feel like, you know, the sermon series could have gone better, and so don't judge me. No, that's, that's not what it is. It's, it's that judgment is God's role, and when we try to assume that role of judgment, we are trying to usurp God's role and putting ourselves in the judgment seat and judging everything and judging individuals and families and, and, and the church and, and everything, and everything's falling under our judgment. We're the ultimate authority. We don't know the hearts of, of, of other people. One of my favorite passages is when David goes with the food for his brothers uh, to the battlefield, and his older brother sees him, and he says, I know exactly why you're here. You're here because you want to see this battle. And it's like, oh, first of all, you, don't, you can't read his mind. Don't assume you know something. There's no amount of body language that's going to convey that. You know, now you're implying that he's doing something for wicked reasons, which he wasn't. We don't understand people's motivations. And our standard for judging is not the same as God's standard for judging. Now, if someone in, in leadership is being unfaithful to the Word of God, is diverting from the, the truth of Scripture, that's a different story. But Paul is talking about how the church is judging the leaders in the church who were faithful. Apollos, Cephas, Paul, Christ, right? They're putting them under a judgment seat, putting their rubric of how they interpret things. Are they eloquent? Do they have good rhetoric? You know, do they, are they you know, tough or loving or kind? You know, it, all that is their judgment seat. And Paul's saying, this is wrong. And so Paul defends himself. And then Paul gets a little bit closer. And this is where we get some tough love. Just like when my father told me what I needed to hear and not what I wanted to hear. And here Paul uses irony to pit two things against one another. The pride of the Corinthians and the weakness of Paul. The pride of the Corinthians and the weakness of Paul. Let's look at the pride of the Corinthians first. Now, Paul has been somewhat indirect up to this point, chapters 1 through uh, 3. He's been a little bit vague and general in addressing the issues in the church. And Now, I've been giving you a lot of context to, to fill that in, to fill in those blank spaces so that you'll understand why Paul is doing what he is doing. But for the Corinthians, Paul is literally... Not literally, but figuratively taking the gloves off. He doesn't have gloves on to take off, I don't think. But notice, just, just notice, just think back over the last several weeks. Think about how 
gentle Paul has been with them to this point, taking the time to remind them that they have the mind of Christ, walking them through their role, the role of the Trinity in their lives, taking, them, taking the time to, to reroute them in the assurance of the good news that their identity is in Christ. But now that he has done that, he needs to have some real talk. Now, as he says, he is writing to them not to shame them, but to warn them, to admonish them, to urge them. Verse 6, I have applied all these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. In other words, we do not boast of ourselves, Apollos and I, but we serve. And Scripture teaches this theme of, of, of boasting not in the self or in man, but in God. We need to learn to live according to Scripture and to stay away from arrogant rivalries. And how do you do that? By living according to Scripture that you learn to see that it is God who is working all things for the good of those who are called according to His purposes, that the people who bless us are a gift from God, that all that we have, those in leadership who serve, those who are great in our midst, those who are of little account, those who are strong, those who are weak, they are all gifts to the church. There's not one person who's a greater gift than others. We're all gifts to each other. There was a, an older gentleman in our church in Australia. He was, I think he was in his mid-60s, but he was only about three feet tall. He had a, um, a condition from birth. And uh, his speech was really difficult to understand. And so when I came in, he had an Australian accent but then he also had a like speech impediment. And I remember standing with another pastor, and he's talking to him, and the guy's sort of listening and, and then responding to him, and I thought, how in the world did you understand anything he just said? Well, fast forward a year or two, I understood him better than anyone else. So the, the pastor who used to stand next to me was saying, what was that again? And I'd say, oh, he's talking about you know NASA. He was fascinated with the space program in America. And he and I would have lots of just really wonderful conversations. Now, he's only at a a middle school level intellectually, but this man loved the Lord. He loved his church. And I saw a lot of people come into our church and look at him and think he was very strange because he did look a little bit peculiar. But if you took the time to get to know him, you would find such a lovely man. Now, he's of little account by our worldly standards. Uh, He worked in a little factory, had a little position. He lived with his mother, uh, who was in her 80s. You know, he's he's not going to be a a theologian. He's not going to be a Bible study leader. But if you take the time to have a conversation, that conversation with this man with the mind of a middle schooler would bless you more than you could ever imagine. 
And so Paul asked the Corinthians three rhetorical questions. Who, what, why? For who sees anything different in you? Or who regards you as superior? Or who makes you different from anyone else? Well, what is he asking? Well, you could take that question in a positive sense or a negative sense. In a positive sense, who made you what you are? Who made you what you are? Or on a negative sense, why do you think you are? Excuse me, who do you think you are anyway? Who, who do you think you are? John Chrysostom, an early church father from the fourth century, makes both points. He says, Where is the evidence that you are worthy of being praised? Why? Has any judgment taken place? Any inquiry proceeded? Any essay? Any severe testing? No, you cannot say it. For if men cast their votes, their judgment is not upright. But let us suppose that you really are worthy of praise and have indeed the gracious gift, and that the judgment of men is not corrupt, yet not even in this case would it be right to be high-minded, for you have nothing of yourself that you did not receive from God. The fact that the Corinthians are of Christ, if you remember the end of chapter 3, the fact that they are of Christ is the basis of Paul's high regard for them. But they are beginning to think that they are who they are by their own efforts and beginning to define themselves by their intellectual astuteness or their high position in society when in reality they are defined by Christ because they are in Christ, which is far better than defining yourself by any of the things of the world which will pass away, much like we do today. We define people by their work, by their, their career, by their vocation, do we not? Oh, you're a doctor. Maybe this is mostly mothers-in-law, future mothers-in-law. <laughs> Oh, you're a nuclear physicist. <laughs> Not so much when you say, oh, you're a housewife. Oh, you're a janitor. Sorry, no. I am in Christ, and Christ defines me and my identity, not my vocation, not my last name, not by what university I attended or didn't attend. For what do you have that you did not receive? Receive, not earn, receive. Everything is a gift from God, our very lives. And anything that is of this world, whether wisdom or power or strength, will it not pass away? But the things of eternal value, our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption, these are gifts of God in Christ. And in case the Corinthians have missed the point, Paul asks, and if you did not receive it, why do you boast as if you did not? To take credit for something that is a gift from God is the height of worldliness, of arrogance. 
And it is a foolish act when viewed from the perspective of a crucified Savior. Now, what follows is really sarcasm. But it is, of course, not without a point. Paul's not trying to be mean to be mean. He starts with this reminder. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. (laughs) That's pretty sarcastic. The Corinthians have all they want. They are fully satisfied. They, They think of themselves as rich. They think of themselves as kings. That's the exact same issue that's happening in Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, where Jesus writes to the church in Laodicea and he says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched and pitiable and blind and naked. The Corinthians are getting the same rebuke from Paul. They think that they have all that they need with their wisdom and their rhetoric and their prophets and their sages. And they are secure in their self-sufficiency. And that, in actuality, beloved, is the most dangerous place to be. But this is a typical of a society from a, a... a stoic philosophy standpoint. And it would be hard in that culture to see that these things don't actually make you rich because that's all they've been taught. They do not make you self-sufficient. But is this not the same as our 21st century American mindset? We, we, we work hard. We accumulate wealth. We, we accumulate possessions. We have become self-sufficient. In Australia, we went on a, um, I just realized all my illustrations are from Australia, but it's a a land filled with illustrations. We went on a retreat uh, as a staff, and um, we went to the eastern suburbs, so uh, sort of away from the city, from the opera house, but it's just the most stunning views. This is like the most wealthy part of Sydney. Every home is, is multi, multi, multi-million dollars. And there's a little, yeah, little Anglican church there, like nestled in amongst all these mansions. And, you, you know, you're looking out the windows at the views of the water and the, the opera house and the city skyline. And, and it's just, it's unbelievable And I remember when I got there, I asked one of the people who were on staff with that church, I said, how many people come to this church? And she said, "Uh, about 30. (laughs) This is not a small district. This is a large parish area. I said, why? Why is it so little? She said, have you seen this neighborhood? These people do not think that they need God. They have their wealth. They have all the security they think they need. They're very healthy. They're very fit. They, they don't think they need anything. They're happy the way they are. So church would be 
ludicrous to them. It would be insanity. What do I need that for? Unless I'm just adding something on top. But it calls you to a life that's the opposite of what they're living out. Now, the actual conditions that are being faced by the apostles are starkly different from the estimations of what the immature Corinthians were stating. Paul spells this out, 9 through 13. For I think that God has exhibited us as us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, for you are wise in Christ, we are weak. I mean, if you're not picking up on the sarcasm, I don't know how you miss it. You, we are weak. You are strong. Uh, you are held in honor and we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger, we thirst, we're, we're poorly dressed, we're buffeted, we're homeless, we're laboring, we're working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. He's not complaining here. He's not saying like, let me tell you how it really is. Let me tell you, I, I hate my situation. This is dreadful. Uh, I wish I was more like you. No, not at all. At all. He's pointing out that preaching the gospel has not been about fame and success and fortune the way that the world regards fame and success and fortune. In fact, Paul endured a number of horrible things in Ephesus, which is where he was writing from, uh, to the Corinthian church. You can go and read it in Acts chapter 19, verse 23 and following. You can read about what took place there. In fact, I have stood in that amphitheater in Ephesus where Paul's colleagues were dragged before the entire uh, coliseum of people. But this position of weakness and deprivation allows Paul to preach the gospel for what it is. The power of God for salvation to all who believe. Paul cannot trust in his own abilities because he knows how lacking they are in his humanity. He has to trust in the power of God, the power that saved him, the power that rescued him, the power that converted him, the power that has enabled him to go out and preach this and live like this. And that is a good place to be. It's more secure than living in the, the mansions, you know, by the water. Now, the number of things that Paul has mentioned here that he's had to endure, it really is remarkable. He, he says he feels like an exhibit that was brought into an arena to be mocked and thrown to the animals. A, a, a sight that would have been very clear to the Corinthians, right? This is a common occurrence in the Greco-Roman world. The gladiatorial games, the, the prisoners and the convicts, and, and yes, later the Christians who were brought into the arena and were thrown to the lions and the wild animals and put on display for the, for the whole audience. Paul says this is how he feels. His gospel is regarded as foolishness. He is weak. He is dishonored. And the Corinthians in their worldly wisdom think of themselves as wise and strong and honored. 
because they behave as the pagans of this age. Paul has suffered economic loss. He's hungry. He's homeless. He has no material possessions. He's often beaten. He works as hard as humanly possible. He blesses people when they curse him. He endures persecution to which the Lord has called him. He's slandered and he doesn't return it in kind. He says he's swept up like trash, like you would clean up after your dog after they visited your neighbor's yard. He's treated like this because the world wants to be rid of him and his foolish message. Now, think of the gap between how the Corinthians apparently think of themselves, rich and kingly, and the reality faced by Paul. Persecution and hardship. You you couldn't get anything more stark, more drastic. And yet they're judging and critiquing and criticizing him. To avoid that same fate, the plight that, that Paul is facing, the Corinthians are instead choosing to make peace with the world. Beloved, where do we fall in line with the culture that falls out of line with the gospel? Where do we fall in line with the culture that falls out of line with the gospel? Is it about our efforts to gain control over people or institutions? Is it exhibiting a a loveless spirit? No care for those that we see underneath us, below us? Is it seeing ourselves as wise in our own eyes? Is 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 it judging things and leaders prematurely? Paul is urging them not to see things from a distorted perspective, but from a reality that Paul sees, not just theologically, but in a practical way, in how they get along as a church. Uh, We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning. And you remember in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, they couldn't even do that right. They were getting drunk. They were keeping people out of the house for the meal because they didn't think very highly of them. They're not a good contributor to our group. We, we, you know, leave them outside. They can eat later. And so he warns them, all while exhorting them to learn about the kingdom of God, the kingdom that comes in the, by the power of the Holy Spirit through the message of Christ crucified, that message that pagans think is so offensive flattering speech does not bring about the kingdom in power. The message of a crucified Savior does. Do you want to know what the solution to the infighting and the, and the, 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 the factions that have formed? Do you want to know what the solution is? It starts and ends with the cross. Looking at Christ and what he has done, the message of the cross is the ultimate answer to their deepest issues. How shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? Paul defends himself. He gives tough love. And now there's this marked change in tone in verse 14. 
And I know we're going long. I'll be late to 10.30. As the parent now reminds his child of his consistent message. It's an affectionate tone after, after giving them that tough, hard love. You see, Paul knows these Corinthians. He's lived with them and among them for for a year and a half. They've become so close to him. They're like family. He still loves them despite their attitudes towards him. Now, he's angry with them, but his anger will not have the last word. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. He doesn't want to shame them. He loves them. But he needs to admonish them because of their immaturity, just as a parent needs to teach a child. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. All the hardship that Paul's faced, he's faced with joy. The Corinthians in this culture, they, they had these guardians that would take your children to school and from school, and, and they made sure that they were sitting in their classes, and they made sure that, that they were doing their homework. That's, that's what he's referring to when he says you have countless guides. They understand that. You've had these guides in Christ who are sort of there to, you know, watch over you and give you discipline when you need it, but, but they only have one father in the faith, and it's, it's him. He, and he's not the stern taskmaster. He's not coming to scold them when they get out of line uh, to make them comply. Rather, he's like a loving father who exercises firm but loving discipline. He's the first to preach the gospel to them. He's the one who led them to Christ, and so he's calling them to imitate him. Look at my life and how I live compared to how you think of yourselves. Don't live like that. Imitate, imitate me. He's not telling them to drop their factions and then just make it, I follow Paul. But rather that they imitate him in making sure that everything they do is done in light of the gospel. That everything they do is in light of the age to come. They must move on from immaturity, leaving these cultural, ungodly things behind them. And because he can't go to Corinth, he's sending Timothy to do exactly that. Verse 17, this is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Timothy is going to come and bear witness to the fact that Paul is consistent in his theology and that Paul teaches the same thing consistently in every church, that he focuses on the preaching of Christ and him crucified. Just as a parent, just as a parent has to explain to the other siblings that they're not getting better or worse treatment or different love, He's not asking anything different from them that he would ask from another church. Beloved, the consistent message of Paul, the consistent message that should come out of pulpits in churches is the message of Christ and Him crucified. It is the gospel. Because it is the only hope. It's the only means by which we can find peace with God. It is the only means by which we can find peace with our fellow man, with our neighbor. 
But if we continue to think highly of ourselves, if we judge the preached word based on the wisdom of the world with our itching ears, if we allow ourselves to fall in line with the culture of the day and out of line with the gospel, then we remain spiritual infants. And we spread the discord and division among the body that will tarnish our testimony and silence our witness. I wonder if at any point during this series, and I know it's been kind of all over the place, I wonder if at any point you thought to yourself, I think I'm immature. There's certainly times that I have looked at this text and been challenged with that. If you've been challenged in this, in any of this series, praise God. We're not here to shame you. I'm not here to say, I knew you were immature. See, I knew it. Oh, beloved, we're here to serve you so that you can grow. But it has to start with you being honest about where you are. Is there a real hunger and thirst for righteousness deep inside you? And as you grow, we all grow. We all benefit from one another's growth in Christ, in love, in forgiveness, in joy, in grace, in mercy. We love you and we want what is best for you. And what is best for you is to be rooted in Christ, planted, watered by the Word and the servants of the Word. If this has been a challenge to you, find someone and tell them. Come talk to me. Come talk to one of the pastors. Find someone you've seen up here praying or, or singing or whatever. Come talk to Paul. We would love to have that conversation with you because we love you and we care for you. Let's pray. Father, so many stones to unturn in these 21 verses, and yet we feel, we feel a little bit of what the Corinthians would have felt. Paul, who they'd been maligning in a lot of ways and misjudging, and he comes to them with this tough love, challenging them, reminding them that it is not their judgment that judges him, but rather it is you who judges. And so the question is the faithfulness to the Word of God. And so, Father, we, we, we want to judge ourselves rightly in this way. Are we craving the, the, the spiritual nourishment, the, the solid food that comes from the deep well of your Scripture? Are we still on milk? Are we still judging things wrongly and from a surface, uh, external appearance uh, situation? Lord, we can lose sense of our own identity and we need hard words like this at times to stir us up. And so, Father, as we talked about at the beginning, if those, if those moments of stirring have come to any of us, we know that that's your spirit, and it is a reminder that you love us. And even if we didn't feel that particularly, we know that Christ has died for us, and you have proven that love over and over for us. And so, Lord, as we celebrate communion, help us to remember what Christ has done. 
Help us to look at ourselves rightly. Help us to look at our neighbors rightly. Lord, we are thankful for these things, that you hold us together. Lord, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.